0: Okay, afternoon session, day two, and Gina's got some feedback from
1: her uh, meditations. Oh, no, it's just a eulogy, a song, whatever, whatever Britain, I think. it <laughs> <Here> goes. <laughs> uh, In the darkness I called out to you. When I was distressed and unable to move, you came to me. You sat beside me, comforting and bringing peace. You gently spoke to me. In kindness you allowed me time and space. You did not condemn me when I lay there day after day. Even when I didn't want to live, you stayed and you sat beside me, watching and waiting, pouring your love into me. You carried me for months in the time of my distress and you whispered love to me. You allowed me to be. I thank you, Father, Abba, for your awesome ways, your love which knows no bounds. Words seem paltry against your awesome awesomeness, but you came and you gave life where death would want to overtake. You are the restorer of my soul and my spirit cries out for you, for the life-giving touch you alone can give. You consume me and I want to be consumed by you. Set me on fire for you and you alone, Lord, for you alone are worthy to be praised. You alone are pure. You alone are righteous. You are the only true God, the one and only. No one compares with you. No one compares with your beauty. Your fragrance envelops me and I am lost in you and with love for you. Lord, take me with you wherever you lead, I will follow. For in you and you alone I have my being. You and your ways are the only true ways. Take me out of the matrix once and for all. Help me to let go of all that goes against your truth. Help me to walk your way, the way of love. Remove the bitterness that threatens to eat me up and replace it with your peace that I may walk in the path of righteousness and with a pure heart. I will lift up your holy name and I will praise you day and night. I thank you that you never let me go, you never abandon me, you are my deliverer. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, says the Lord of hosts. Come and sit with me and I will sing you a love song. Come and follow me and I will lead you in the way everlasting.
0: Beautiful. I dare say we shall have that typed up and wrap it round the CDs as, as they go out. So <laughs> it's really, really lovely, thank you. Okay. So the little diagram that I've put on there, some of you'll be familiar with. It's the um I've got some copies of it here. You won't pass them out. Some of you, as I say, have got them. Well, it's a a diagram of is the levels that God takes us um, in our journey into God. And each established truth is a stair on a stairway. And only truth that is lived out can be added. And when the stairway is complete, it takes us from one level to the next. He won't take us up a level until he's satisfied. That we've learnt all the lessons on one level. And on every level you meet a bigger devil, as Graham Cook says. And you've got to beat the devil on the level that you are on. Because the idea of the devil (coughs) being bigger on the next level is that you become as big as that is. So you arrive at the next level and you see something huge. And God is whispering, I'm going to make you as big as what is coming against you. And that is Growth so that you are taking on bigger things, you need something to overcome, because you can't be an overcomer if you haven't got something to overcome. So we need battles in our lives to strengthen us and cause us to grow. Our natural man wants to run away from it, pull the sheets over the head or the duvet, and say, I'll just come out when it's all over. <laughs> I was doing that in the last of years. <laughs> But that doesn't grow us on. Because what you'll find is when you do peep out, God will be saying, Hello? <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready now? You go back under again. Uh, so he takes you from lo- one level to the next, and the whole process starts all over again. Because everything begins and ends with his delight in you. He is delighted with you. He loves you to distraction. He adores you. Uh, he didn't spare his own son. So everything begins and ends with his delight in you and his desire that you may grow. Because as we saw this morning, none of us has a child and then expects it to stay a baby. Um, we shall be looking, at, Lord willing, at the um, Nepios, Huyos thing. I'll just give you a, a quick scoot through it. Um, if I can find my notes. Um, there are four or five stages in the life of a child, and the Greek words are nepios, that's N E P I O S, which is a baby in arms, and it's literally a baby that can't speak, very dependent, can't do anything for itself. And then there's the technion, that's T E K N I O N. Uh, which is the weaned child or around about the weaning stage then there's the technon Uh, you can get confused with these two but the technon is actually a a child growing up a bit into adolescence and another word is paid on which is what Jesus used an awful lot for the disciples literally lads Um, boys what you're up to boys you know That's the word he was using when he spoke, and that is spelt P-A-I-D-I-O-N. But what God is aiming at for us is a huios, which is a fully mature son, and that's spelt H-U-I-O-S. And when I get round to spelling out the characteristics, you will know where you are. You might be in between stages. Um, You might be coming from an adolescent into a fully mature son but every one of us ought to be aiming for that maturity of a huos. because a huos is one who does what his father tells him and God wants us all to reach the point where we think and feel like he does um, yes it is love and but it's not love 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 all the time there are more attributes to God than the attribute of love and if we overweight on one we get out of balance and that brings us into trouble because if you look at God's justice without his love you, you come into legalism and um, if you come into love and you look at love without holiness you come into sloppy agape so you have to be careful to take the whole counsel of God take it on board understand it so that when he does chasten you as he will every son whom he receives he chastens you understand the chastening process and instead of running from it you yield to it the whole thing is about yielding ourselves submitting ourselves to his discipline because whom the lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives the the king james says so it behoves us to listen to to what he's saying and in these days though there were times when Jesus was meek and mild he was very strong and he was very straight and he said very hard words Um, I saw something this morning where he was talking in the Gospels to the scribes and the the Pharisees got on their iron legs or the vice versa and said what you're saying is actually insulting to us (laughs) and Jesus went on and sort of said well yeah I know and here's a bit more (laughs) So he doesn't actually pull his punches. Mm. Years ago um reminded that uh, I had a dream and in this dream I was standing at the foot of someone's bed and they were they were in bed, sitting up in bed, they looked quite perky really, and I had got one of these clipboards with their papers on it. Now because I'm left-handed when I put a pin in the paper the pin comes down facing towards anyone who's going to brush their hand up And when I was at work, I had to be careful to pin it so my boss wouldn't go like that and rip his hands to pieces. Well, in this particular dream, I had put the pin the wrong way. So I took it out and placed it the other way. And someone standing to my left said to me, that's the trouble with you. You always try to soften what you're saying. And I woke up and I prayed about it. And what God was saying to me was, when I give you a word, you're not to soften it. Because how many times have you heard someone bringing, we heard it, didn't we, round the corner, that uh, he is torn but he will he- heal three days later. But it doesn't, it doesn't apply to us. <laughs> and this man did this whole exposition, and Joyce and I both knew that it did apply to the church. But in one breath, he'd wiped out the message that God had given him by saying, but it's not us. It's all right. We're we're perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. So when you are being a mouthpiece, you do have to be careful that you bring what God actually says. Mm -hmm. And in the way that he wants to say it. That's Mm -hmm. the other thing, the other side of the coin, is you don't hammer people over the head with it. Does that come in the category of fear of man then? Why did he... About the softening, yeah. Mm. Is it fear? <laughs> fear of man. Mine? mine wasn't. It's just that I would, I would think I was being too harsh, so I would be looking at myself as not bringing the word, that the way God wanted it brought, and He says to me, the word is as strong as it needs to be. So sometimes the word that I will bring and the responses I make, I apologize for because they're coming out of the wrong spirit. Someone was here the other day, and and I said. I was talking about um, righteous anger and how we have to be careful about um, using that term. And someone piped up, "Oh well, Jesus was Jesus was angry," and I said, "Oh, not that old Jesus." No. <laughs> and I apologized because it was it was a young Christian. He didn't understand, and he got this. And he's probably heard it. You know, Christians often excuse their anger by saying, "Well, Jesus was angry," you know, and mine was righteous anger. Very few of us actually can exhibit righteous anger. <laughs> what we, when it comes right down to it, it's something that has offended us or is not the way that we think it should be, and so we get angry. Um, so when that happens, invariably the Holy Spirit will cause me to apologise. A good rule of thumb is uh, what Graham Cook says. If someone says something to you and you think, oh, that was a bit sharp, You go to God and you say, Father, was there a grain of truth in that? Mm -hmm. Because when God is wanting us to move our feet, we can get offended and and defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. We instantly spring to our own defence. In the very area, probably, where God is actually saying, well, look, I actually want you to look at this. Stop defending yourself. Mm -hmm. You've been compassing this mountain long Mm -hmm. enough. Let's go straight. Am I speaking to someone? (laughs) You can see I haven't got notes on this bit, can't you? So we will be getting down to the meat of the weekend, probably tomorrow. So the huyos is one that does what Father says. And Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is not saying that we aren't sons, but this is the huios concept. The fully mature sons are the sons of God who, to whom God is able to entrust his power. As I'm always saying, you can't give a, a baby on a tricycle um, a Lamborghini, because he'd be off down the road killing himself and somebody else as well. You have to... It, there's two things go on with God. One thing is we learn to trust him and that's a process but the one that is even more difficult is him trusting you whenever and it has happened on several occasions people have said to me one particular lady actually Lola almost invariably when she prophesies over me she'll say God's trusting you with this and I think oh no what's he doing that for (laughs) I can't be drafted. but When he trusts you, that is something else again. Two types of trust. Him trusting you, you trusting him. But first, you come to the place where you trust him. And then he begins to say to you, I'm actually giving you this, I'm trusting you with it. And that is an awesome place to come to. And as I think I probably touched on when I did the thing about leadership, if more leaders were aware really of who they were serving they would be much more careful with the way they deal with the flock Mm. because it's not their flock they are under shepherds and they are responsible to the shepherd the great shepherd shepherd of the sheep and that is their responsibility indeed Um, so please come and tell me if I've trod on your toe and I will apologise so To become a son, it's a person who's open every moment of the day to the Spirit of the Lord. And this is the position God wants you in, so he can lay things on your heart to get his will done. Whether it be by intercession, or something practical, or physical. How many of you have had the impression to do something? And you've done it, and the person maybe rings someone, and the person on the other end has said, I was just about desperate. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The other afternoon I was sitting out there and I'd been asking the Lord if I could ring June and um, I I was saying to him I'll I'll perhaps ring her after seven when the baby's gone to bed then. And he suddenly said do it now. So I rang right at that moment and she said, oh I'm down a hole, (laughs) (laughs) that's good. So another day comes. Ring June, I'm thinking, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, she's in a dither. So I rang June and almost her first words were, I'm in a dither. Thank you, Lord. So you learn to discern those fleeting thoughts that come through your mind and then somewhere along the line you think, that was you, Lord. You learn to pick them up and say, Lord, I'm running with that. If it's wrong, that's fine, but this is the way I'm learning to hear your voice. And that's all about moving out in faith. It's all about what faith is about. So the little thing I want to talk to you about this afternoon is the gaze of the soul. But specifically, and I've headed it up, what's the faith? Okay. yeah the red lights sit. Ha! Ah. ah, she says. So I'm going to quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. Those of you who who know me know that I like the old writers and A.W. Tozer is one of them. I haven't got too much time for a lot of the froth and bubble that comes out uh, in the name of literature these days, Christian literature particularly. Um, Tozer is like Graham Cook. His books are very tiny but... You just gotta stop and think about what he's saying. So he's saying, let's think of our intelligent plain man coming for the first time to the reading of scriptures. He approaches the Bible without any previous knowledge of what it contains. He's wholly without prejudice. He's nothing to prove and nothing to defend. Such a man will not have to read long before his mind begins to observe certain truths standing out from the page. And that's a quote from a book called The Pursuit of God, which I would highly recommend. And he goes on to talk about faith, what it is and what it isn't. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews that without faith it's impossible to please God. Faith will actually get me anything, take me anywhere in the kingdom. But without it, there can be no approach to God, no forgiveness, No deliverance, no salvation, no assurance. Everything we have, if you think about it, we receive it by faith. So what's a faith? What is faith? How do we define it? And most important of all, do I have it? There's actually no biblical definition for faith apart from Hebrews 11.1. If you just skip to there for a second. where it says, New American Standard again, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The old King James used to say, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it's that which you can get hold of when you can't even see it. so faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen this tells us what it is in operation not in essence and we see in hebrews 11 that by faith abraham left by faith rahab put the string down out the window and we see in romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god that is why the Word of God is so important. You cannot grow without the Word of God. And to paraphrase praise, uh, Thomas A. Kempis, I would rather exercise it than know the definition of it. That's what uh, Thomas A. Kempis said, or Peter Stott's version would be, it's better felt than tell. <laughs> That's the way you do it. As we examine the Bible, we see that looking and believing are linked together. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says looking unto Jesus, find it, I'll start verse 1, therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles tangles us and has us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, some of the uh, versions say, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking unto Jesus and in Numbers 21 verses 4 to 9 this is where they are wandering about they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom And the people became impatient because of the journey and the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up against, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness for there is no food and water and we loathe this miserable food. They were talking about manna. Mm -hmm. You'll find that is mentioned um, in that book Lord Change My Attitude. That comes into the category of grumbling and complaining. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent he lived. So we see what God told Moses to do for the people who were bitten. He told them to make a serpent of brass and put it on the pole and when they looked at it they lived. And if you flip forward now to John three fourteen and 15, you'll see that Jesus says something very similar. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So going back to this man who's looking at the Word, he would see that looking and believing are synonymous. Looking on the Old Testament serpent is the same as believing on in the New Testament in Christ. He would understand that while Israel looked with their physical eyes and were healed, we look with our hearts upon the finished work of the cross of Jesus. So we have to conclude that faith is the gaze of the soul. Upon God. Psalm thirty-four five says, "They looked to Him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed." Psalm one two three one and two says, "As the eyes of servants look to their masters, and the eyes of a maid to her mistress, so our eyes are on You until You have mercy on us." Psalm one two one one, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help and jesus himself in matthew 14:19 looking up to heaven he took bread and broke it looking and believing and from all this we see that faith is not something done once there is believing faith by which we're saved and there is the continuum of faith as we progress graham cook talks about two types of faith or two types of trust there is a situational trust where you say, I'm trusting God in this, you know. Often people will use that when they haven't actually got a word from the Lord in that situation. And then there is the life of trust, which means you settled it once and for all and you live in a place of trusting God, right across the board for everything. And that's, so there is situational trust but there comes that place which is all a growth where you actually find yourself trusting him for everything. So it's a continuum as we progress and we see growth again. Looking unto Jesus is a continuous gaze of the soul upon the one from whom everything flows. It's lifting our hearts and minds, the inward gaze of the soul, to behold the Lamb of God and to never cease that beholding until Jesus comes. We lock our eyes onto His and we stay there. Have you ever seen a sheepdog rounding up sheep? Doesn't look at the sheep. Eyes on the shepherd. Round the outside of the sheep, eyes on the shepherd, watching for what the shepherd is saying. Round them up Rosie, you know, bring them in. And round and backwards and forwards, nipping at the heels of the sheep, bringing them in, eyes on the shepherd, all the time. And Colossians 3, 2 and 3 puts it this way, Set your affections on things above and not on the earth beneath, for you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Mm -hmm. It goes on to say, and when Christ who is your life appears, you will be like him. Mm -hmm. It is your life at first this will be difficult because I said this morning our minds are like wandering birds but should you once tell him that this is what you want your hearts gaze forever on him and him alone he is actually faithful to take this intent as your choice and he will make the allowances needed for our frail flesh Mm -hmm. and bring us back to that magnetic north time and again so you get Graham saying we'll go and we'll go together and get it Mm -hmm. That happens when you've told God what your intent is. I want to be as intentional towards God as he is towards me. That was my prayer this morning. Make me as intentional. You've not withheld anything from me. Grant me not to withhold anything from you. So the gaze of the soul, the set of the sail, the determination of the heart are all observed by the God who sees me. Do you remember Hagar yesterday? Yeah. The well of the God who sees me. Have I seen the one who sees me, she said. We'll probably be having another look at Hagar tomorrow. didn't get around to it because God is taking the program and just changing the way it comes out. Faith then is occupied with the object upon which it rests, Jesus. And it's therefore the least self-aware or self-regarding of the virtues. It doesn't see the smallness of itself. It sees the vastness of the one upon whom it looks continually. So if you find yourself looking at yourself and saying, I can't do this and I can't do that and I'm this and I'm that the other," you've got your eyes on the wrong thing. You look away from your own inability and look to Him who is able. Did you know that God will never give you something to do that you can do? He will only ever give you something god size to do because only He can do it. So you have to be, I can't do this. I sat here before we started just then and I thought, I've completely lost my thread. I wonder where I'm going. But I know that he says, open your mouth and I'll fill it. So in faith, I open my mouth and he fills it and it's, I do my homework, but whatever comes out is, he turns the tap on and off. So it's occupied with the object upon which it rests and the one whom it looks continually. So if your God is too small, I suggest you change your focus from looking at yourself and your inadequacies and inabilities to gaze on the All-Sufficient One, the Creator, the Maker of Heaven and Earth, and you will find yourself satisfied indeed. While we gaze on Him, the things that we've tried so hard to do in our own strength, He will be doing in us. When we stop tinkering with our own soul, He's free to work in us that which He wills. And God will indeed be working in us both to will and to do used to have a joke with Joyce that she unzipped herself like a banana and examined what was in there every now and again. And I couldn't understand this. I'm thinking, why you let the Lord do it, you know. She had this zip fastener that went down the front here that she's peering in there and seeing what she thinks, tinkering with her own soul. Joyce, <laughs> <laughs> Faith, then... Is a redirection of our focus, getting our eyes off ourselves and onto Him as a deliberate act of the will, here comes that will again, and keeping them there, gazing steadfastly into His face without wavering. Sin has twisted our vision and made us self regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be. And the word exhorts us to lift up our eyes to the Lord and then the blessed work of faith begins. A.W. Tozer again, he says, When we lift our inward eyes to gaze upon God, we are sure to find a friendly face looking back. For it's written that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And the sweet language of experience is, Thou God seest me, as Hagar again you are the God who sees me and like Hagar we will say have I seen the one who sees me? If faith is but the gaze of the heart towards God then it follows that it's one of the easiest things to do. It will be like God to make the most vital thing easy and to place it within the grasp of the weakest and the poorest of us here I come with another prayer this is a man called Nicholas of Coosa. I've not read any of his writings I think they would be far too difficult for me but this was brought to my notice by someone and I love it I've got some copies if you want it Oh Lord I've heard a good word inviting me to look away to thee and be satisfied My heart longs to respond, but sin has clouded my vision till I see thee but dimly. Be pleased to cleanse me in thine own precious blood, and make me inwardly pure, so that I may with unveiled eyes gaze upon thee all the days of my earthly pilgrimage. Then shall I be prepared to behold thee in full splendor in the day when thou shalt appear to be glorified in thy saints, And admired in all them that believe. And as Joyce said to me the other day, that is Thessalonians one or two Thessalonians, isn't it? Just look that one up. Two Thessalonians. No good me looking mad at the end of it then. Two Thessalonians one ten. There we are. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marvelled at Among all who have believed, isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. As I say, some of you do know there's a crown. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, Mm -hmm. and for all uh, those—I think it's the crown of righteousness—for those that um, love His appearing. There are all sorts of crowns, you know, laid up for us. We don't like to, as Brits, look think about rewards, but they're there. as I've said before the Christian will never stand before the judgment seat of Christ we will only ever stand before the beamer seat which is the seat where you get your rewards for the deeds done in the body as Paul calls it it's why it's so important that we get into alignment with God and we are in alignment with his purposes we find out the good deeds that he has prepared in advance for us to do as it says in Ephesians and get on with doing them because there's a reward for that I'm going off into conjecture here a bit. But there was someone, I'm not sure if it was Jesse Duplantis or someone like that. The man that had some trips to heaven. Jesse Duplantis? White hair. Mm -hmm. theatrical. Very. I saw a video of him once and he was sitting, he was speaking to people and he was sitting on, you know they do these very stagey sets Mm. they've got, sitting on the steps telling us about his visit to heaven and what he saw there. And my understanding of it was and I've just been reminded it now whatever state our soul is when we go to meet with the Lord, um it's fine with this is not about a salvation thing. If we haven't fully come into the huios of God, then we will continue our training when we get there. And he said he had met these people who were in various stages of training because they hadn't actually applied themselves while they were here, though they were believers, or they hadn't had the opportunity for whatever reason. They were still working away to get their stars and stripes, as it were, Mm. to get them to the place where God could give them the reign and the rule. Mm. I was going to say, you say to us, you're always saying that, Thing about training, training, for for raining, raining. training for raining. That's it. Well, I, I but if we don't just undergo, as as stop once we got to be with the Lord. But it depends mm-hmm. on how how far you've allowed mm-hmm. yourself to be trained, mm-hmm. because you can look at it and see the parable of the thirty, sixty, a fold. The seeds that were sown mm-hmm. were the same. The hu- the whole field had good seed. <laughs> it wasn't to do with the seed; it was to do with the field. Thirty. Sixty, a hundredfold. So you've got that ability to bring forth a hundredfold. I've always said I want to be, I want to be, to do what God has planned for me to do. That is my prayer. I want to be what He has got there. I don't want to have to work for it when I get there. I want to have done it by the time so for me, coming into Christianity at 48, I've got some catching up to do. So I've always asked the Lord to put me on the fast track, get me there. Um, this is, I don't know, how do you say it? If we are consumed with this life, we are of all men most miserable. That's why we have to as, as um, I know, I'll get it in a minute, Alison was saying, come to a higher place. Oh, yes. So that we see things from a different viewpoint. We start to get a kingdom perspective over things. Instead of having our eyes horizontal, we've actually got a kingdom perspective. We're, We're aiming higher. We've got a goal. Lord, what is your goal for my life? What are you after getting me to? Where's the place you want me to come to? And actually then, intentionally saying, I want that, I want it. I'm going to possess the land. As as you well know, I didn't know where I was going this afternoon. Now this is another one of my own crafted prayers. Um And I did prepare them and then found that I'd sliced them in all the wrong places. <laughs> so I had to slip to prepare them a little again. And this one says, Father, I want to live in that place that Jesus died to give me. I'm starting to understand, Lord, that I have to live above these things and occupy a place in the spirit realm where I can only see from your perspective and like Jesus, I only say what you're saying and only see what you're seeing and only do what you're doing. I need an anointing that looks beyond the natural into the supernatural so that I can see the kingdom of heaven at work. I pray that you will enable me to inhabit that place, that I may come into my inheritance, that I may come into the favor and blessedness that you have set aside. I pray for a revelation of your love to fill my heart, so that I may come into a whole new place of spirituality, a whole new place of walking with you, where I will be convinced of the bigness of God that you love and care for me, that you are for me, you want me to succeed and you're on my side. Amen. Another little prayer you might want a copy of. Okay, just to finish off this afternoon then I have realized what I should be doing. Uh, Inheritance words. These things were mysteries to me when Graham Cook started teaching about them. What an inheritance word but i discover that they are words that speak into the coming season that god has got in our lives when i was a a young christian i had words that followed me round, and i didn't know what to do with them now i see what they were about so i'm going back over them and calling them up again and saying right everything i can get out of these is mine so if you have got um words of scripture that seem to follow you round, um what and I give you, now, okay, the the one that the Lord gave me was, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, in Joshua. You, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. So there was an inheritance word, but I didn't know it. Um, he, he also, um, he gave me some others, and I can't remember them right now, but that was, that was, that was what it was. So inheritance words, apparently, are God's intentions for us because they reveal to us what's on His agenda. Now had I realised that at the time, I wouldn't have gotten such a tizzy about things that came along. So every truth in them belongs to us. It's Father's gift to us and it's to be experienced by us. So have a little think, have a little pray. Father, have there been words that have been banging around in my brain that you've actually given to me to see me through the next leg of my journey and I haven't realised. Because that is going to make such a difference. It prepares you for the next stage of your journey. I think I've told some of you the biggest idiot I made of myself was at one of Graham Cook's partner's days when he spoke about inheritance words and I didn't understand what they were then but I'd been given this this scripture in numbers it kept coming up I see him but not now you know Balaam actually it was um, talking about the Lord so I'd toddle up to Graham with my Bible open and say to him I keep getting this scripture do you think it's an inheritance word and he turned to me and said better ask him hadn't you At which point I made an inner vow, Don't ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I hear myself saying it all All the the time. People say things I say, better ask him, hadn't you? (laughs) So now I know where he was coming from. (laughs) So an inheritance word, very lovely, very important. So it's important we understand about the scriptures he's given us if any of you have heard Graham over the the fullness of time he talks on Psalm 91 that God gave him and God wouldn't let him come out of Psalm 91 and he'd say I fancy a bit of Tim so he'd go over into Timothy and his eyes had crossed because he couldn't see (laughs) and said luckily I had a bit of string hanging out of Psalm 91 so as soon as I got back into Psalm 91 everything came into focus again and God was saying to him I need you to get this Um, Because in it of course it talks about encountering angels and he says if this is someone's inheritance word then encountering angels will be part of it. For he will give his angels charge over you to accompany and defend and preserve you in all your ways of obedience and service. And that particular psalm brings you into a place of warfare and they get to know what God is and the inheritance available to them when they come up against the enemy. That is why God said to Graham, I need you to get this for the next level that I'm taking you into. Oh. He tells some hilarious stories about the warfare that he's coming to. It weren't funny when he was in it. Um, but One of them, you've probably heard it before, is out somewhere um, away from this country and. Um, There there it is in the evening, tries to go to bed, the rooms full of demonic, and there they all are. So he does whatever he does and tries to get to sleep. Next night it's the same, fed up with this. Third night he says, Father, it's not going to happen again tonight, is it? Yes, son. So this third night he decides he's going to do something different. So there they all are, standing there leering and doing whatever they do. And he pleads the blood of Jesus to shut them in. <laughs> and then he worships for two hours, solid. They're absolutely screw trying to stop their ears up. They can't stand it. He said, and when I was finished, I said, you are dismissed. And they went. Mm -hmm. That was why God had to take him through that. That's why he gave him Psalm 91, so that he would be able to war a good warfare. So inheritance words need to be lived, Thought about, prayed over, memorized, and studied, so that the things that God wants to give us are understood, and we need to stick with these scriptures until He says stop. He's given you one, hasn't He? Well, so I just realised that what years ago you said me asked for an inheritance word, which was Luke one. Yes. Then He did give me a, a passage in Hosea and John seven. Teen, it's the one a, that the a moment recent one, and I'm just repenting of, of, of not taking enough notice and mm. going into, doing the grand cook
1: and going
0: into some other things set my eyes are blurry <laughs> <laughs> so we need to stick with these scriptures until he says stop he doesn't want us distracted we need to really mine them and discipline is required with it because every ounce of revelation we get in an inheritance passage is ours to experience And as we do so we become the living embodiment of it. One of my inheritance words is something like Deuteronomy 5 where he says to Moses, as for you, stand here by me and I will teach you all the things you are to tell them. Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. one of my words. Stand here by me Mm -hmm. and I will teach you. Graham used to have a logo of the word coming down into his ear and out of his mouth and you said that to me the other day didn't you it comes into my ear and out of my mouth and in between it's processed so every ounce of revelation we get in an inheritance passage is ours and when we get an inheritance word this will be the point at which our relationship with the Holy Spirit will take off Faith will rise from it. Joy and peace and the love of God will be real and tangible. You can't study your inheritance word without the Holy Spirit sitting alongside you and showing you what God wants to show you through it. And we'll learn to know what it is to live in the word and get our brains adjusted to what God is saying. Because inheritance words will mess with our thinking if it isn't already in line with God's. It adjusts our thinking to his mind and heart. So we need to see ourselves in these words for the rest of our lives because he will deal with us through them. Inheritance words give us confidence that we can turn towards the enemy. Like David had an inheritance word that he would be king. He was, he was anointed as king before he went out to meet Goliath. So he knew he had no fear when he took on Goliath because he already had it spoken over him, he was going to be king, so he knew he was going to win. And through these words, God gets the uttermost glory. So our response towards inheritance words given to us should be, Be it unto me, Lord, according to your word, like it is in Luke. Uh, In Luke 1, isn't it? Mary said it, didn't she? Be it unto me according to thy word. So have a dig round, scratch round in your memory, have a look to see what it was way back there that scripture that everywhere you turned you tripped over it and you're thinking what's this all about that was an inheritance word and you can bring it forth and ask the Lord what it is he wants to speak to you about in it Um, when he said this when I suddenly understood this I clawed back I think they're probably in my book there all the words that God had given me, but not understanding for years, I kept that that word um, in Deuteronomy. You know where he says, "If thy presence go not with me, take me not up hence, because how will it be known that these are thy people except you go with us?" And I had that on the on the in the bathroom upstairs for years, little realizing it was an inheritance word. <laughs> so I've really been packed so be blessed thank you for listening for that little addendum or to that little addendum and have a look and if you don't have one ask the lord for one because by the time you go from here the end of the weekend you will have one for your next stage in the journey god bless okay Okay, here we are good morning and we're on day three of um in the hands of god And today um, I suspect we really will be in the hands of God. Um, And it's the 20th of April, I'm reliably informed. So I just want to look um, at three people who were changed by the Master's Touch. Um, And that little picture up there is the hands of the Potter. So the first one is Hagar, who we talked about uh, on Friday, who we find in Genesis 16, where Abraham and Sarai cook up a plan to help God out. Actually, it's Sarai who is the instigator of this. Tiring of waiting God's timing, if you calculate it, you'll see they'd waited 10 years from when the promise was made. She suggests to Abraham that he goes in to her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, to help things along a bit. Bear in mind, they'd already got God's promise of offspring in Genesis 15, 1-21. And at this point, Abraham is 86 years old. Now Abraham was persuaded by Sarai, as was Adam by Eve, to do something contrary to God's will and purpose. And here we really see the law of sowing and reaping coming into effect. Disobedience always has a price tag. So Abraham, Abraham sows a seed and Ishmael is the result. And we are of course still living with the consequences of his impatience. Be that as it may, the point that I want to draw out here is that Hagar flaunts the fact that she's conceived and this results in a domestic as we would call it these days. And Abraham, Abram telling Sarai to do with Hagar if she thinks fit. You can imagine that, you know, having a little two and eight inside the tent, you know, over this girl that you've taken. Well, what Sarai thinks fit is vengeance, and she deals harshly with Hagar who subsequently runs away into the desert where Jesus finds her and prophesies over her. When you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is a Christophany or theophany and that is the, the um, appearance of Jesus himself. So God is honouring the seed from his servant Abraham even though it's, still not, it's not his perfect will. So Jesus prophesies over her in verse 11. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And then verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. Be'er lahai For she said, Have I also seen here him who sees me? She had a face-to-face encounter with the God who sees. When you've been in the face of God, you will soon be in the hands of God. And any of you that have been following our uh, courses and schools that we've done, the last one was in the face of God, which finds us now in the hands of God. So Jesus promises her safety if she will go back and submit to her mistress, which she does. We serve a God who sees, who has compassion on us in our weakness, who understands what we are made of and still encourages us to grow. We see this in Psalm 139 that you used as a meditation over the last couple of days. You know when I get up and when I lay down. He sees. As I said before, this passage gripped me when I was preparing for this weekend. You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me it's so personal so he sees us he hears us comes right down to it he's the one who sees us all the time the good the bad and the ugly and he never condemns he only ever encourages us to grow he's lovely so i want you to take on board that name you are the god who sees me Be'a le I don't know really quite how to pronounce it, but that's how it looks. And we've looked at various other names in the Bible, but this was the one that struck me forcibly when I was studying for this weekend. You are the God who sees me. And having seen me, you aren't going to leave me where I am. David says in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Can't get away from him. Don't try. So whatever he's asking of you, do yourself a favor, and the rest of us, and let him have it. As Abraham contemplated the heavens, he entered a realm of knowing God, and God spoke. And as God spoke, something began, but it didn't finish. The revelation of God is progressive, he reveals himself, and later we find him saying, Shall I tell Abraham, by now his name has been changed, what I'm about to do. Abraham sees God as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who himself provides the offering on Mount Moriah, foreshadowing the offering of God's own son as the sacrificial lamb of God. So as we saw the other day, he sees him as El Shaddai with the power to bless and provide. We've already looked at the progressive revelations of God, but I'm going to look at them again because they are so important for us. So for the moment, now Abraham, Abraham is in the process, he's in the hands of God, because to obey this living God has taken his son up a mountain to sacrifice, and the boy was about 11. This is the boy for whom he's waited, and God has given him what he wanted. Whenever we meet him, we leave with a different motivation, a different creative thought, being in the face of God we then have to be in his hands to achieve what is placed within us. So Abraham gets to the place where he's totally dependent on God to supply what he needs. He has to be in the hands of God in order to receive from God, to receive in order to do what he's got to do. God himself will provide the lamb. When you've seen into his face you have to put yourself into his hands to be different to do differently. Exodus 3 1 to 6 and another one who was changed by the master's touch Moses. God reveals himself as Yahweh at the burning bush. I wonder how it would have turned out if Moses hadn't been so curious about the bush and gone over to have a look. He turns aside to have a look and God reveals himself. Notice that God is revealing himself to man. The Bible is a progressive revelation of the person of God. And again, Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord out of the midst of the bush. Moses. God comes to him as a self-existent one. Moses comes face to face with the God who sees him and it shoes off. God reveals himself as, I am who I am and I'll be who I want to be, the self-existent one. Moses comes face to face with God and from that point a prophet emerges, a broken man in God's hands, a model for Jesus himself. Moses moves with a brokenness, a murderer who would become a deliverer, a rejected man who would become a leader and a friend of God. Because he's broken, he's in God's hands. He comes as a prophet, a worker of signs and wonders, and a friend of God. He's changed from his face-to-face encounter with God and goes into the hands of God to show the hand of God. He will not only receive, but show forth the fact that he's been with God. Exodus 33:11. Says So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You cannot be in the hands of God without showing forth the hand of God. In verse 12 we see Moses talking to God. See, you say to me, bring up these people and lead them. Just look that one up. So Exodus 33, and I'll start from verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, thou dost say to me, I'm reading from the New American Standard again, Bring up this people, but thy, thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover thou hast said, I know you by name, and you have found favour in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favour in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I might find favour in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favour in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not but by thy going with us, so that we and I thy people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favour in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then he gets very bold and he says, Can I see your glory? which is what God wanted him to do all along so he says if I have found grace in your sight teach me now your way or your ways Solomon when asked what he wanted asked for wisdom Moses asked to know God's ways and in these days if we do not know God's ways we are going to go off the path because we need to know the ways of God with us because his ways as it said in Isaiah 55 are not ours and all his ways are goodness graciousness and humility and honor and they're good so he says that I might know you and I might find grace in your sight he knows he isn't going to get anywhere without knowing God and his ways and we find Jesus saying the same thing in John 17:3. he says this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent God's ways we have to find them out what they are and as I said Isaiah 55 tells us that his ways aren't our ways so another man and in 1 Samuel 17 we see David underrated and rejected by his brothers rated and anointed by the God who sees him rejected by his father and relegated to look after looking after the sheep while the boys are at the front fighting. David is a man known of God and who knows God, the God who sees me. He places himself in the hands of God when he comes face to face with Goliath and because he knows God, he challenges the giant in his life, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and goes out to battle. Later when he has to choose whether to fall into the hands of the God who sees him or man's hands, he chooses God. Because there are no better or safer hands to entrust yourself into. And having been in the face of God, he knows it's safer to be in God's hands even in a day of judgment. Psalm 51 and David again, having seen the face of God and being thrown into the hands of God, is transformed. You'll know well that Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after his transgression with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband. For any of us who come hungry for God and a readiness to do His will there needs to be a face-to-face encounter. If you prayed the prayer Lord change my love at the last baton meeting what's going to happen today will be part of that process. He's taken you at your word and the process has begun to change you by the hand of the master on your life. The God who sees you, the God who knows you. Someone Lola again prophesied over me a couple of years ago and she stood behind me and she put her hand on my right shoulder and she leaned all her weight on it. And she said the hand of God is heavy on you like my hand on you. It is not a light thing to be in the hands of God or to have the hand of God on you. If you are wise, you will begin to get the proper awe of God and the fear of God. Because he's everything, he is love, yes. As I said before, and those of us who listened last night to the tape on the love of God knows that you cannot take just one facet of who he is without having all the rest. So when you're in the face of God very soon you'll be in the hands of God. There's a process in the heart of God for every one of us in this room. and The encounter in the face of God is always intended to bring us into the hands of God. When God reveals himself to us in salvation that is just the starting line not the finishing line. It's the beginning of a lifelong process of God being who he wants to be for each individual person. Being in the hands of God is about personal transformation and progressive revelation. Moses had to be hidden by the hand of God because he couldn't cope with seeing the glory of God. Don't go from here thinking I've got some notes, I've got the CDs. This is about you being in a face-to-face encounter with him. In his face, in his hands and back to his face. There is so much more of his glory to be revealed to us and in us and through us. If you want a study of others who were transformed by the Master's Touch, try looking at Peter who had foot and mouth disease. <laughs> Gideon, the wimp hiding in the wine press. God gave me that title. I thought, Lord, that wasn't very kind. <laughs> and there's a lovely example of it's not how you start, it's how you finish. He found Gideon hiding in the wine press. Hey, almighty man of Valour, who are you talking to? <laughs> so he comes up and he does the business, but he does it by night because he's, he's naturally a bit scared, but he goes off at the end of the day. It's how you finish, it is not how you start. You can start, you know, with a whoosh and go like a shooting star and, and burn out. It is that consistent walk that God is looking for. He's looking for faithfulness in his people and a willingness. So have a look at Gideon, the wimp in the winepress. And then of course there's dear Jonah. Oh, I did identify with him for years, I no, not years. For a considerable time, I identified with Jonah. I knew you were going to do that. I knew you'd forgive. <laughs> Sitting under my plant while it withers, <laughs> and Paul, have a look at Paul, and look at the process of transformation in them as God has His hand on them. Uh, the process in their lives. Mm. Okay, so that's the first session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.